Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we rewind back to September the 7th, 2021, one of the, the, actually the most recent uh, episode that we have rewound during this period, uh, what, a year and several months ago. I had Neil Spackman on. Neil Spackman is a person who, to me, personally is an inspiration. Neil took Jeff Lawton's online PDC. Shortly thereafter, he was given an opportunity. Now, that was that was it. That's pretty much the training he had, and, and some pro- professional knowledge and things like that. That was pretty much where he was at. He received an opportunity to go consult in the deserts of Saudi Arabia on one of the largest permaculture projects that's ever been done, working with the Bedouins. And he was both excited and terrified. So he contacted Jeff and said, Jeff, I have this opportunity. I want to do it, but I'm terrified. Can, can, will you help me? Jeff said, yeah, I'll do what I can. I'm not going to be there. It's going to be your project, but I'll advise you. I'll help you. Of course you should do this. And it was an incredibly successful project. You'll hear about that today. Coming off of that, I didn't really know what Neil was up to. I spoke alongside him at Permaculture Voices in 2014, I believe it was. So by the time, this has been you know quite a few years by the time we did this episode. Well, I was listening to some other podcasts, and I was listening to one on permaculture, and he ended up on there as a guest. And he was talking about a new project that he was heading up, and a company he was building. And they were working down in Mexico, and they were they were restoring massive marine terrestrial systems. What's a marine terrestrial? So you got the edge between marine systems and like mangrove uh, swamps, and then into what you can actually start using the land for some level of production again. And they weren't just restoring these massive ecosystems. This is the thing that makes me so inspired by Neil, is the scale of operation. Where we get excited when we see a project that's being measured in a 100 or a 1,000 acres. Neil's doing projects that measure in the tens or more, sometimes hundreds of square miles. Or maybe even over a 1,000 square miles. Miles restoring not broad acre, but broad scale entire ecosystems and doing it in a way where people can actually still earn a living and we can actually feed the planet. We can actually make things better, but we can also still coexist with nature rather than block it off and say it's a thing to be looked at way over there. Don't touch it. We are an innate part of the system that is this planet. We are as native here as any species. We are as native as an endangered rhinoceros. We are as native as a penguin. We are as native as a polar bear. We are as native as a microbe. We are as native as anything else on this planet. We are a natural part of planet Earth. However, with the giant brain that I talked about we have earlier this week, and our capacity to think before we act, and our adaptability, and our ability to communicate broad scale across the entire planet, and even leave our own planet, with that response, with that Power comes responsibility. Because we are the only species that can truly destroy our environment and still live there. If an elephant destroys his environment, they have to migrate and go somewhere else to stop doing it. And the population suffers directly and immediately. Elephants can't really think about it. 
That's why we have balanced systems, predator and prey-based systems that create natural flows. But we break that flow. We, as the, the, the most intelligent being on this planet, and we are. Some people are like, oh, it's the whales or the dogs. No, 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 no. When they build a spaceship, we can talk about it. When they build a cell phone, we can talk about it. When they invent writing, we can talk about somebody else being smarter than us. We are the most intelligent beings on this, pro this planet. The fact that we don't behave that way doesn't change that. But if we can do massive damage, then we can do massive scale restoration, and I believe that we have a duty to do so. Neil Spackman is doing that in a big way. Wait till you, if you didn't hear this one originally, wait till you hear it. And if you did, I guarantee you there's going to be parts of it like I don't even remember. It's going to be like listening to it for the first time. This concludes our week of great permaculture interviews during Rewinds while I'm off in Bastrop, Bastrop, Texas, helping teach people about the greater reset. I will be back, reset myself. Whenever I take trips like this, it's always worth it. I hate doing the long, you know, long, almost full week of rewinds, leaving you guys without new content. But whenever I do it, it's always worth it because I come back after being with people like you, fully recharged. The awesome people I'm down there with, I sh I'm sure when I come back, I might be a little too, a little too much for a couple days. I'll have to dial it back, but I will be back with you on Monday. With that's been, uh, with that. Let me remind you guys again that you can always support this show simply by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And let us rewind back to episode 2950, Neil Spackman on Restoring Desert and Marine Ecosystems, first published September 7th, 2021. Um, and with that, let's go ahead and introduce uh, our special guest today, Neil Spackman. Um, again, I, I've found this man to be one of the hardest working, most influential people that I've ever met. Uh, in fact, he might be, I would say, definitely top five most influential people in the world that I've ever met in real life. And talking to him, you'd never know it. He's one of the most humble, hardworking people I know. And with that, hey, Neil, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. Happy to be on here. Man, I'm glad to have you on. I first became aware of you and your work uh, through Jeff Lawton. And we'll talk about that project as well when you went out to uh, Saudi Arabia and did this amazing project in the middle of the desert. Um, and I remember, I mean, you had just really gotten started, and you're like, I'm taking this thing on. And it, that was through Permaculture Voices and all that I, I first uh, became aware of you. Um, but what I, what I really wanted to get you on to talk about today is some of your new work. Uh, I heard a podcast interview with you and some of the things that you're doing with marine systems. It just kind of blew me away. And we haven't done a deep dive into permaculture for a bit on TSP, so I was I was like really excited to get you on to talk about this. This is like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like world changing stuff. But can we can we back up for a minute from all of that and just like how how does Neil Spackman end up in the world of permaculture? Like, take us back to before you were, and and what what led you down that oh, path? Oh goodness, probably. Um. I I served an LDS mission in Guatemala between 2000 and 2002, and that was when I really, sometime in there, it really got me interested in poverty and the environment and international development and that kind of stuff. I did I did a lot of service work down there, like digging wells and helping people who hauled firewood for a job, like haul an extra load for a day. So I I was you know, in some pretty 
some pretty poor and rural areas, and it got me interested in sustainability and food systems and sustainability in the environment. And I ended that um, trip in 2002 and was there during 9-11. That's how I ended up being interested in the Middle East. And at some point in my mid-20s, I said, you know what, I just, I'm passionate about this stuff, about sustainability and food, sustainability in the built environment. And somewhere along there, I discovered permaculture. I don't remember exactly what the catalyst was, um, but Toby's book was the first permaculture book I read. Um, Toby, who was also at Permaculture Voices with us that first year. Um, and at some point, I... I was working as a professional news reader. I was reading um, newspapers out of the Middle East and writing up reports on current events, and that went to clients we had in State Department and DOD and a couple other places. Um, and I didn't enjoy that job, but through that job, I met somebody who was doing this project in Saudi Arabia where they offered me a chance to go and do it. So it had been a passion of mine for a number of years, I had, you know, read everything I could get my hands on, but had very little experience. Um, and then Al Beda, which was the project in, in Saudi, was my chance to pivot into doing this stuff professionally. So that's, that's kind of the short version of that story. And, and can you tell people, just give them like a mile-high view of what that project was, how big it was, and what you guys yeah. did with it, because it really, when people talk about greening the desert, you know, like, because that's what got me into permaculture, is I saw Lawton's first greening the desert project, but it was a relatively yeah. small area, and having practiced this stuff myself now for well over a decade, I know a small area is one thing, a a broad acre, and this is really a broad mileage project and then oh by the way that you you get like two inches of rain a year or something crazy like that good luck like what you guys did was amazing it was that was an adventure so i was living with primarily two tribes of folks who had been nomadic as recently as five years before i met them like people who had been settled by government policy and government incentive, but whose culture and heritage was nomadic pastoralism in the Saudi desert. And with a team of men from these two different tribes, we prototyped a system that would um, essentially reconvert deforested desert into a silvopasture, where we were leaning into the, you know, their expertise as camel and sheep and goat herders, right? Their knowledge of just animal husbandry in general, but finding a way to key that back into a system that would restore ecological function, um, heal the water cycle, get the mineral cycle functioning again. And so we, we had um, a, essentially a hundred acre prototype site where we built this system out Um and we reversed about a century of desertification in under a decade. And uh, it's not within that same region. It hasn't expanded, except that some of the people I worked with have done this on land that is theirs 
but the methodologies, the systems that we've come that we came up with together have since been adopted by a number of provinces. Um, according to to folks that I've spoken with privately, and that that's not an announced thing where they've said, "Oh, thanks to Albeda, we're doing this this way." But um, from people that I know in in a couple of the ministries, they've said, "Yeah, we're pretty much just copying what you did." So it has been. It has been adopted, and because the site was a fractal, the geography of our site scales up and down across every watershed in the region. It it was something that is applicable across large, large swaths of land um, in the Western Arabian Peninsula, and I would say a number of other desert watersheds globally. So it was um, that's how I kind of got into this stuff professionally, and in land management and ecological restoration and permaculture was a foundational a foundational aspect of it absolutely and what you did there just so people are clear on it it's not like a bunch of people with gardens it is a broad scale restoration of the the native ecosystem using i think some plants maybe are not originally considered native but it's you did try to bring it back to what it was so that it could be basically an, an, an a, like a human-animal managed system. So it's not about growing, and maybe they're growing some here or there, some tomatoes or whatever. It's more about the civil pasture model, moving these animals through the system. I know you did things with bees. Can you kind of talk about some of the the plants that made it? Because a lot of them didn't. And, you know, you guys did yep. some irrigation, but my understanding was, like, you didn't irrigate any more than the system was capable of giving back to the aquifer. It, it was really, like... A, a difficult thing and just kind of talk about what actually worked out of it what 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 it looks like now we can give some people we can mm. give people a link to you know your videos and also they can see cause it's amazing nothing surplants that but like what kind of trees what kind of system and, and also could you talk a little bit about how eventually you turned off the irrigation and and they begged you yeah. not to they're like please don't do this and yeah. you're like it has to it has to go on its own or it's not sustainable that's it. Um, so we we were in the foothills of the mountains that run north and south along the, the Western Arabian Peninsula. So we had 60 millimeters on average of rain a year, which is just over two inches. But we also, in my nine years there, we, did, we had two different three-year periods with no rain at all. Um, so that average isn't, it's not extremely useful in terms of depicting what the actual situation's like. Um, when, um, when it rains, you get these massive floods, right? Because the watersheds collect all the water up in the mountains and then it rushes out to the Red Sea. So it's, the hydrology is, um, it's really messed up because you're losing 80 to 90% of all the fresh water that falls on the land you know, in 12 to 24 hour events. So the first thing we did was we came up with a, a water management system in these mountains and it, just a lot of earthworks, um, some key line based stuff, some more typical permaculture based stuff like swales um, and a lot of Zuni bowls and check dams and, and more mountainous watershed type structures um, like they teach at the Kivira Coalition. But um, that gave us 
a measurement. Every time it rained, we were actually able to measure how much water we caught. And then we'd say, okay, if we assume we don't get any more water for 24 months, what can we actually grow with this amount? So we had a water budget, essentially. We were measuring how much we caught and then saying this is the limit to what we can use. And then we know that it's something that's sustainable as a managed system. So we we actually ended up using, in the establishment of, of that 100-acre prototype, we used about 20,000 cubic meters of water in the establishment phase, and that was between 2010 and 2016. And over that same period, we caught about 50,000 cubic meters of water in our system. So we're, if you don't account for evapotranspiration, which I didn't really have a great way to measure, but we put twice as much water in the ground as we, more than twice as much water in the ground as we took out to establish the system, um, which for me was a key metric because it's like, well, if, if we're just depleting groundwater to get this going, then there's no point because at some point it's going to collapse on itself. So understanding that water situation was really critical. Um, and then we trialed about a dozen different species of trees that um, some of which Jeff actually helped me select and some of which I found on my own through research. But um, the idea was we want trees that are going to live here and thrive given the harsh conditions, but that are also going to either um, provide some kind of soil amendment in the form of nitrogen fixation or some kind of product that we can actually develop and bring to market. And preferably both, right? Like you want the microclimate creation, but you also want uh, financial resilience coming off of whatever you're growing. And out of those dozen trees, the very best one was a local moringa, which has never been developed commercially. It's actually a side project I'm working on right now. But this is this is called moringa peregrina. It's native to Oman and the Sinai Peninsula and used by Bedouin tribes in those regions, uh, but it's never been produced commercially. And it, um, the oil, the, what, what we were going to sell off of that was the oil. The oil is quite expensive. Um, and then it was going to produce animal slaughter on top of that. The other ones that did well was a, a local prosopis, which is a mesquite, but there is a mesquite native to Arabia, um, it's Prosopa cineraria. We also did uh, the Juliflora, which is quite hated and despised in that region of the world um, because it's so invasive. The ones we planted, we took from a grove down the road where it was, I mean, it's essentially been naturalized, but the it, bureaucrats and environmentalists who are involved in and this kind of thing, they hate this particular mesquite, which is Prosopis juliflora, um, which which is, I think, uh, justified in some cases. But for us, it was well, whatever that, whatever can grow here and produce something, we want it. So we used some of that one as well, and then a zizophis, which is a jujube. Um, zizophis spina Christi did very well. Produces a very expensive honey and also a very small fruit that you can jam or jelly. Um, and then 
all the local acacias that came up on their own, which are native and, and, you know, they just came up in the space in between where we were planting and we were happy to have them. That's, that's what did the best for us. That's that seed reservoir uh, that is there that people generally don't realize. Like you get this going and then there's, there's all of this, there used to be something there. Like, I think we should be clear the place you're restoring, you're truly restoring. People think of desert and they think of like movies and it's like vast seas of sand and whatever. And, you know, most yeah. desert is what you would call scrub desert or forested scrub desert, like where there yeah. are things that grow there. They're just not it, – it's, it's never, you know, without extreme artificial means, going to look like the northeastern United States. It's not going to look like, you know, the mountains of New York or New Hampshire. That's not what we're saying when we say forest, but most desert has – you know, vegetation in significant amounts. We've just kind of screwed it up, and you guys are trying to kind of put it back. And on the invasive stuff, like, I've been digging a lot more into that world and finding out that for every one species that truly is a problem as an invasive species, there's 99 that are fixing things that nothing else can fix. That's, that's my gut sentiment as well, is... And, and I had to defend myself in front of uh, some, a bunch of different ministry officials on that particular tree. Um, and I think I held my own because I said, look, you're, you've got these people out here. They are absolutely destroying everything. And I've got a species that can allow them to make a living while re eliminating that destruction of everything else. Um, and they took it into consideration and still asked us not to grow anymore. But, um, it, it's it's not intuitive to think of desertification happening in a desert, uh, but that is the case in many places around the world. And and for me, we didn't have access to data per se, but I made it a habit of finding the oldest people in every community that I got introduced to and asking them, what did these places used to look like when you were little? Right. And I think without exception, I never had an exception to this. They'd say, oh, well, when I was little, I used to go with my grandpa up to this part of the mountains and we had flowing water and we had all these trees. Um, and now none of that's there anymore. Right. And, and I do have, I do have a, a good friend in my video in one of these wadis or these dry river valley beds who's saying, look, I used to not be able to see the mountains on the other side of this valley because of all the trees. And there are no trees there anymore. It's just been serious deforestation, which leads to crazy drought flood cycles um, and just bare ground everywhere. You know, I don't, I don't know if it was one of your videos or a video about the area. It might have been one of yours where there was a, a gentleman, he was speaking uh, some form of Arabic, so it was translated. But... It was about that very subject. It used to be trees and whatever. And someone asked him, well, where'd the trees go? And he said something to the effect of people cut down trees. It's what they do. And it was like, oh, yeah, that, wow, that that might have been your video. Like, it hurt when he said it. And I was, I'm thinking about that along with this concept of, like, we're growing these trees. They have monetary yields. They have products that come out of them. And the only way I see to fix this is to make it 
we, I think you and I would both just look at it and from an Earth's perspective say it is more valuable to have that tree there than to not have that tree there. But it, we have to actually create a situation where it's more economically advantageous for the person that lives. Because you can even say, well, you can make this grand scale argument that you know we're economically better off with a forested planet. That, okay, fine, I agree. But the person that lives there that has to feed their kids has to look at that tree and say at least – I'll get more out of that tree over 10 years than I will out if I just cut it down. And they have to be able to make it that 10 years for them to be willing to do that calculus. Because I remember when I was broke living on ramen. You know, I, yeah. I didn't give a shit about next week. I was thinking, how do I get through this week? And, and I think it's we sit in a place, and I hate this word because it's so overused, but we do sit in, in a developed world in a place of privilege where we can think that way. And it, like you, you were in, you were on missionary trips, and all. I served in the military in Central America and South America. Like, if you don't get outside of this bubble that we live in, I don't think you really understand the decision. Like, why would that person cut that tree down so they can live? Right? I mean, it's like asking, why would you breathe? Like, you're using up the air, but I need to live, right? And that's how. Like, if you can make that resource valuable, then they'll protect it. They'll defend it with their lives instead of take it away. Well, you, you've hit the nail on the head. This is actually the underlying thesis of the company I'm running now. Um, so that was my video. That That's my dear friend, Abdirazak al-Adwani. Um, he's one of my favorite people on earth. But he, he took me to his home where he was born. You know, and it's this one-room stone thing that his grandpa made. And he's, and it's, but it, it's it's this connection between economy and ecology that is so poorly understood by people who haven't had to live this right where there's there's an inextricable connection between poverty and ecological degradation everywhere you find ecological degradation you will find poverty next door to it um, where the pattern is people need to meet their short-term needs and they do it with destructive practices that are unsustainable um, and in my experience, they know that that is the case, right? For people who are cutting down trees, they know they shouldn't, but they got to feed their family tomorrow. And oftentimes in these communities that I've, you know, been introduced to or, or consulted in, it's that they they even know what the solutions are a lot of the time. Right. They'll, they'll say, oh, well, we wish we could do this and then we could stop these destructive practices and start rebuilding whatever resource it is, whether it's a forest or a fishery or, or whatever it, or soil, whatever it may be. Oftentimes it is a lack of access to resources, a lack of know-how, a lack of access to technology um, and and then oftentimes a lack of organization or political power. To, uh, to be able to pull those solutions off. And since, since leaving Saudi Arabia, I've, I mean, I've done short projects and, and have some longer ones in East Africa and West Africa, in Europe, in Mexico, in Colombia, and this pattern is emerging everywhere I go. It's that just that there's this connection between degradation and poverty where they are reinforcing each other and each is getting worse. And the underlying premise of all the work that I do is we can reverse this where 
just as degradation is causing poverty, if we restore ecology, we can start creating wealth again. And if we tie that wealth to ecological function, then we have aligned incentives of people to take care of the lands and to become stewards rather than to be the source of that degradation. Absolutely. Let's, let's, that's a good transition, too, to the work you're doing now. You are doing work that involves marine systems now and, and salt water. And I believe some of that even might even be like a situation where you're bringing some of this salt water to uh, irrigation practices in what would otherwise be considered desert. And that probably yeah. has some people a little bit triggered because there is a way to do that that's really stupid. That's not what you're doing. But, like, people tend yeah. to, like, once they know a thing, then that is the thing. And then, you know, that, that's bad. Because if all we're doing is, you know, partially desalinating seawater and dumping it in desert soils, we're going to salt the earth. But yep. there's ways to do this. How are you doing that and making it make sense? So we're we're calling this regenerative seawater agroforestry. But it's basically a set of mangrove and seagrass-based agroecologies. And uh, in a lot of the places where we are starting to work, in between the coast and the beginning of a cactus ecology or a desert ecology, you've got this strip of heavily salinized landscape. Um, and sometimes it's a mudflat, but generally not. Generally, there's no... There's nothing really there. And you get these salt pans, and there's there's essentially no biodiversity on these places. And what we're doing is we're using seawater and aquacultures as the uh, medium and the nutrient to grow essentially constructed mangrove forests and mangrove wetlands. And um, there's a decent model of this on our webpage if people want to go look at it. But essentially, on these landscapes where nobody sees any value in them, there's essentially no biodiversity. There's no, uh, there's no plant life um, because of how salty it is. What we're doing is we're, using, we're building aquaculture systems. And instead of dumping that effluent back into the ocean, which is what most aquacultures do, we're pumping it through this system of seawater-based agroecologies, which includes crops that grow in seawater, like salicornia or sarcocornia or disticlus. Um, we're alley cropping those with mangroves, and then we're doing mangrove woodland, where we are coppicing. And then we're doing mangrove wetland where we're, we can grow algaes, we can grow shellfish or, or lobster or crab, depending on local markets and depending on local ecology. That's what, we, that's what we're trying to tailor all of these designs to. And so it's this transformational system where we're bringing seawater um, onto these areas where it's just full-on degradation, desolate landscapes and using the nutrient from aquaculture effluent to grow these agroecologies based on seawater. And I think that, like, the mangrove truly is a gift to humanity. Like, what, you know, I spent a lot of my life in Florida and fishing and, and backwaters and all, and, like, the diversity, the robustness, and it's, 
as bad as some of the red tide problems are from sugarcane farming and, and housing and, and, and what have you, without the mangroves that are part of that estuary system that comes out where Fort Myers and Sanibel is, it would be a thousand times worse. Like, and, yeah. and when I go there and I fish, and I've been going there since I was a kid in, in the 80s, um, I, it, it's still to this day, now you're talking 40 years almost, right, never ceases to amaze me the diversity and the robustness of that ecosystem, even with the red tide that wiped out a huge amount of, of marine life a few years ago. Mm. I was just there, mm. you know, three years after that happened, and it's like it's still a sportsman's paradise, and it's managed, you know, very, very... I, I'm not a fan of government, but I have to say that overall, the management of those ecosystems in Florida is, is, is about as good. It's done about as well as a government can. <laughs> and yeah. it, it amazes yeah. me, the diversity. And I when, when we're there, I think, you know what, I could buy one of these big beach houses. I wouldn't have a lot of money left over. But I honestly look around and go, I wouldn't have a grocery bill either. Like the amount of food that's just available there. So I think if you're designing that with intention... You, maybe you can even do better. It's they're they're an amazing, amazing ecology, and they. I mean, it's the numbers I've seen is that sixty percent of all ocean life that we know about relies on mangroves during some part of their life cycle, whether for the food that they eat or to like spawn or to. I mean, they're, they're absolutely critical. They cover a very tiny amount of the ocean. Um, but are, you know, necessary for the health of the oceans. And to, I, I think using them in a productive, constructed system is an extremely innovative thing. And, and it's not my innovation. That's, I've, uh, I've got a number of partners who have spent decades developing these seawater systems. Um, and our senior science advisor was a gentleman named Carl Hodges. He passed away earlier this year, but he was, he was the one who came up with the idea. He was like, we've got an infinite resource, which is seawater, right? We're never going to run out of it. Um, and we can produce all this stuff with it, right? We can produce food. We can produce fuel. We can produce fiber. We can do it in circular systems. And we're never going to run out of the input. Right. And not only are we never going to run out of the input, we don't have to care about fresh water at all. Right. We can be a farm that produces indefinitely. We never have to care about fresh water. And when I when I wrapped my head around it and I and I kind of what I brought to this group was the permaculture and regenerative mindset of how do we do this as an agroecology rather than in a linear sense where we're still needing to use fertilizers or, or pesticides or whatnot. Um, but it's, it's got mind blowing potential. It's got massive potential to change food and water security situations around the globe. Um, and to, and at the same time to, uh, you know, provide greater habitat for biodiversity, to create new economies for people's, for villages like fishing villages where fisheries are collapsing, the applications are really um, they're mind blowing to me, and I'm extremely excited to be a part of it and to be rolling these out. 
can you kind of like give people a sense of the scale we're talking here? Because if we're talking about mangrove systems, we're not talking a couple dozen acres. We're talking large scale aquatic systems. Maybe some of this uh, the, the 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 aquaculture component uh, is maybe a, a relatively small area, but the actual management we're talking broad scale in a big way, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, our we've just leased. 2,700 hectares in Ghana, and we're trying to add another 5,000 to that. So our phase one in Ghana is 15,000 acres. Um, in Mexico, we are um, we're trying to purchase a site that's about 3,500 acres by the end of this year. Um, but then the, the other thing we're doing with it is we're also doing reforestation. Because often, and this this goes back to the that original point that you made, the the premise, um, where degradation and poverty are next to each other, and and interrelated. Um, in the communities that we're working with and partnering with, especially in Mexico, but also in Ghana, um, they've come to us and said, uh, and let me give you just a bit of context here. In both situations, these are coastal fishing communities where their catch has decreased by 90% in the last decade. Um, in both situations, they're starting to um, hunt illegal species like sea turtles because a sea turtle will feed your family for a week. Um, and there is massive deforestation and degradation associated with that. And what they've said is we want to bring our mangrove forests back um, and at the same time, if our if your mangrove system works, right, the aquaculture and the, this economic system works, then we can put our fishery at rest for a number of years and allow that fishery to come back. So we're we're combining this circular economic system with reforestation, um, and in some cases, we're likely to do seagrass restoration as well. And so it's, yeah, we're we're looking at massive, massive landscapes in uh, Nayarit, um, the site that the Ministry of Environment took us to was forty thousand hectares. And that's that's said, amazing. We've got, we've got communities here; they need jobs, they need jobs that aren't destroying the environment, but we also need to bring the mangrove forest back. That's amazing, and what what I love about the marine systems is the potential for spread and um, adjacent impact is higher. So I can go put in a beautiful permaculture project, say 500 acres, really big one, and there is no doubt that beyond the borders of that 500 acres there will be an impact, right? But if Absolutely. It, but but if the guy right next to me that owns you know 2,000 acres plows it flat and grows cotton. My impact on that 2,000 acres is inherently limited because he's mechanically preventing it from occurring, right? He doesn't want it to occur. He doesn't want diversity. He wants cotton. When you get into an ocean system, we've done a lot to damage the, the marine systems as a whole, but if you establish a 3,500 acres uh, a mangrove-based estuary system, you know, 
there's no doubt that you're going to have thousands of acres of water where no they you know nobody's plowing the ocean where you're going to have this yeah. um unseen maybe because you're looking at the surface as, as rippled water beneath the surface the impact on marine life as a whole goes way beyond whatever borders are on your control in a way that I think I'm not sure can be duplicated on land unless the land is allowed to rest like you're saying but since nobody owns you know this 50 acre piece of the ocean thank god that yeah. that impact that peripheral impact can be much greater if that makes sense yep absolutely so the the yeah i think the positive externalities are going to be wider ranging because you don't have that neighbor right our neighbor is the ocean um there are ways to measure it though that where that we want to implement we haven't done it yet but we're we're in the process of setting up setting it up um are you familiar with bioacoustics jack um i think i know what you're talking about are you talking about things like how the whales are affected by the sounds from the ships is that what you mean there's uh, that's that's related this is okay. this is a way to measure changes in biodiversity without needing a bird watcher to go out and just like take notes of everything he sees What we're doing is we um on all of our projects we're setting up recording instruments where they record all the sounds on our site and then that audio track gets played through a computer and an AI system and eventually that computer says these are all the species making these sounds on your site Let me tell you, that's the most uh, badass, geeky nerd computer shit I have heard in 2021. That that is freaking awesome. Uh, because you don't you don't need to hire a person. You just set up a boombox on a pole essentially and put a Bluetooth thing on it, and it feeds the audio files into a computer, and then it says, okay, at this time of day, you had these species of bird on site making these sounds. And they and over time it will track the increase in biodiversity on our site. And you can also do this in the water. You can record the sounds that different species of fish make in the water. Um and that's that's aqua bioacoustics and then there's standard bioacoustics and we're planning on doing both because I'm quite certain that in the near to medium term people are going to start paying for biodiversity credits the same way they're paying for for carbon credits. So I think I think we can actually aside from just it's the right thing to do and we want to track it, I do think there's going to be a way to monetize it in the future. Yeah, I agree. I also kind of want to go back to this like the the peripheral effects too like because we 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 do have a huge overfishing problem. Uh, in, in our oceans, oh, yeah. we we do, but oh, yeah. I think sometimes maybe we we want a clear point. This the the guy with the fishing trawler is the is the enemy, and like we we don't look at the totality. So I mentioned like where we fish in Florida. I'll take trips out to some of the reefs, and we'll catch really big like black grouper and red grouper and things like that. Mm. And then when we're fishing the inlets and the mangroves and stuff, you know, you'll catch a red grouper, but he's like the size of a sunfish, right? A little bitty thing. Yeah. Well, if he's out there on that reef, he's dead. Right? So, 
what's happening is those fish are moving into these these estuary systems very short term depositing their their eggs and then they're leaving and the young are growing up in that place like a nursery where there's lots of things that will eat them there but if you put a four inch little grouper swimming around you know a, a drop off off the Florida coast a goliath or something's going to just swallow it right up they need to kind of put some size on develop their 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 fish sense and 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 their capabilities and then they move back in and there's that's just one example of a couple species like there's hundreds and hundreds of species that we think of as being open water species but their early years they need these estuary systems the right and if you take that away i don't care what you do to clamp down on fishing in the open ocean you'll never fix it cuz there's no babies exactly you need a nursery and people think permaculture and people think permaculture is just about chickens and pigs and trees and food forests right like i really don't see a place that this type of thinking can't make things better than it you know maybe not perfect but better than it is yeah yeah i agree i agree wholeheartedly well and and it beyond you know beyond the biodiversity piece it's it's uh protection from storms if you're ever boating in a storm you're supposed to go more up in the mangroves. It's the safest place you can be. Um, and I, we're not doing this, but there's, you know, rumors about saying, well, if Miami is going to be underwater, maybe we just need to plant a bunch of mangroves because they can, they can grow five to 10 millimeters of, of soil per year. If the water's rising at a rate slower than that, then they can, you can build a protective border around a city with this stuff instead of just building a giant concrete wall. Um, but protection from hurricanes, protection from storm surges, they definitely cool. I mean, in, in the, in our, in my partner's prototype system of this mangrove agroforestry, which they did in Eritrea in East Africa, there's a video about that. Actually, if you look up greening Eritrea, um, you'll find a video about that project, but they, they cooled the local climate by two degrees Celsius by bringing this mangrove forestry system into a desert. Um, It's going to, it's going to increase the water cycle, the small water cycle. It's going to improve the hydrology like the, the externalities here, as far as I can tell are all positive and they're significant. Uh, particularly at scale. Yeah, yeah. I, again, I just think this is awesome. Can you talk about maybe some of the things that these systems will be able to produce as yields? Because as we discussed earlier, like without a yield, then the system doesn't have enough value to the people that need the yield to protect it. In other words, yep. now they're going to they're going to go from farming to mining, right? And we we don't want to do that. So, what kind of yields are we looking at? Um, and, and kind of in various areas, because you have like an area that sounds to me anyway like a, more of an intensively managed, you're maybe pumping some water, moving some water or something like that, and then you have this entire kind yeah. of estuary system that is that is balanced off of it and part of it. Yeah. So we, um, we're starting with aquacultures. Um, in Mexico, it's going to be a blue shrimp that we'll start with. We may move into other aquacultures there. Um, then we're producing 
a lot of wood and leaf material in the woodland, which can go to a variety of different products. We're growing um, salicornia, sarcocornia, disticlus um, in one area. And on another project, it's going to be sea kales. And uh, those are all halophytic crops, each of which have their own different kind of market, some of which we will further process and some of which we'll just sell raw. Um, and then we're doing algae production, macroalgae. Uh, Gracilaria is likely going to be one of the main ones most of the time, but not all of the time. And then oysters, uh, crab and lobster, if, if, the, if it's in the right location. Sea cucumbers, if it's in the right location. The, the beauty of this thing is that it's, it's extremely flexible because we're working within an ecology. Um, so depending on local markets and, and proximity to export markets, we can do all sorts of different things. Um, but salicornia is a standard one. Oysters are going to be a standard one. I've got a great oyster expert who's been producing oysters for over 15 years and sells his stuff in Los Cabos. Um, and he's coming on as our oyster expert to help us determine where and what type and, and which system in the different projects we've got. Overall, um, we're looking at in general a, between a 9 and 11% IRR on these systems, um, which isn't, it, it's not like software, but it, in terms of agriculture, that's very, very good returns. Um, and then the other pieces of it are the real estate, um, the carbon, because it is carbon sequestering, we are going to play that carbon crediting market, especially now. That market is heating up. Um, and then it's a, it's a mix of what do we sell locally versus what do we export, what do we process versus what, what do we just sell whole or raw. So it's it gets quite complex when we're talking about product, but um, but I feel confident about it. Well, and then it's like we were talking about the peripheral effects. So then there's this entire second tier, I would imagine, like you have a mangrove system, you're going to have native species uh, move in and, and establish beachheads and start to reproduce and develop populations. And then that's another yield that can be harvested more from like a, a small-scale fishing operation or something like that. Yep, so there, there is a that's, that is kind of like a phase two Um particularly where we are partnering with villages or communities who have come and said, look, we can't, we're not catching any more fish. Um, the idea is that if we already have sales of goods off of the initial system and we give that fishery rest, right, we allow it to recover, then we can also give these folks access to higher value markets and built-in marketing through the sale of goods already happening off of these other systems. So that is something we're looking at for, for like a phase two with these projects. It's, but I think it's at least a five-year process before we get there. Yeah, that, that would seem reasonable, but it's, it's, it's very exciting, right, like to be able to look that way. And I think like creating jobs for people in all of this is a huge thing. And so in time, you, you start to get into some more sophisticated knowledge-based jobs. Like, so if you're going to do that, you don't want to end up back where you were. So you just can't have people coming out with, you know, 
gill nets and netting everything out. You have to kind of set, um, you know, set limits to uh, to population and consumption, right? The third third principle yeah. of permaculture, right? Yeah. So now you need you need to develop local expertise as marine biologists that can say this particular fish species we can harvest, you know. X number or X number of tons of per annuum without harming the population, right? Then you need some level of local governance, uh, law enforcement, if you would, manage wildlife management is a term I would prefer better for that. Like, let's make sure that everybody's, you know, staying within the, the, the guy. So you're developing this whole economic ecosystem that cooperates with the biological one. And in fact, I, I almost don't think there's a differentiator there because Just like the predator fish needs the minnow so it can live, the human needs these things so that they can live. So the human is a biological component in this. That's right. It's just we're channeling that behavior properly. That's right. And it's it's sometimes I like to think about this in terms of um, becoming indigenous. Um, and I'm using the word indigenous in the sense that it, it means that people belong to a place and are integrated with the ecology of a place, right? Which isn't the case with all indigenous peoples historically, but that's, that's how I'm using that term when I think about it this way. It's how do we, instead of people being, you know, the cause of the destruction, how do people become the keystone species? on which the rest of this entire system hangs, right? And if if we if we can adopt that mindset and say, okay, look, there are ways for us to bring bring the fishery back, bring the forest back, and do it in a way that every person involved in that is wealthier at the end. Um that's that to me is the you know the holy grail and and the the vision that we're trying to pursue here and it gets it gets complicated very quick um but as you said right it's it's management of a common resource as a community um becomes a necessary part of it but it also means that it's an it's a resource that can persevere indefinitely absolutely and i mean This is all great, but are you going to lose your permaculture card because you've committed the sin of being a capitalist, right? Like your 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 company is a company that actually operates for a profit, and I'm sure this is much to the lamentation of many a, a purple breather that you know you're not a nonprofit. And but I think we've kind of been hitting on exactly why you guys made that decision, and it's what I've always said: like don't think a company is benevolent just because they're a nonprofit. There's plenty of CEOs with jets that. Uh, run nonprofits, right? But but I think we do need to be able to earn a return on our investment of our time, our labor, our talent, our capital, or what we're doing is also. And I won't even stop using the word sustainable. It's not regenerative. Like we should be able to be yeah. doing these systems to the point where they actually begin to far outproduce the inputs, but then they actually begin to self-replicate and spread. And I don't think you know you can you can argue about the way it should be. Like, people should just care and love and whatever. But, like, the reality is you cannot get another country to get on board with doing this. And, and, and the scale we're talking here, you kind of need, like, national level or at least regional state level, you know, like, in being invited in and given the opportunity. Yep. You're not going to get that if you can't say, look at the economic output. Like, you have to have that, too. Yeah. yeah. 
No, it's, well, and this is the decision I came to when I was still in Saudi Arabia. Because uh, in Saudi Arabia, I spent at least, you know, a third of my time, a quarter to a third of my time fundraising, right? Going out and, you know, asking for handouts in order to go and do our work. And, and at some point I was like, you know what, there's got to be a way to do this where I'm not just helping preserve culture and environment. There's got to be a way that this can be financially sustainable as well. Um, and it, no, it's exactly as you said, when we're talking, the, the reason that governments are willing to talk to us is because we are creating jobs and creating economies, right? Because that, that is the linchpin for this whole environmental thing. And we, we tend to not, in, in popular discourse, we tend to separate these out. And, and it's, it's a big mistake, in my opinion, because... If you take all the, let, let's say there's a human set of problems and a, an environmental set of problems, right? The human set is poverty, want, ignorance, um, injustice, crime, war. war you know, you, we all know this set of problems, right? This human set. And then the environmental set, we, we separate it out and we say, okay, we've got... Um, aquifer depletion, soil erosion, deforestation, desertification, biodiversity and habitat loss, ocean acidification, um, fishery depletion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and the only way historically that we have ever tried to address one of these sets of issues is by exacerbating the other, Right. When we try to address the human set of issues, right, we, we create economies, we, we create jobs, we educate, et cetera, et cetera. We only ever do it in a way that it damages the environment. Right. And if, when we try to address environmental issues, we do it in a way that it exacerbates the human set of problems because we we cordon off these large areas and say no human is allowed to access any of the resources in this thing. Right. We, we make it off limits to people, which in turn means that there's now fewer resources for people to access to try to solve their own sets of issues. And this 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 separation of the human from the environmental and, and these these different sets of problems fails to recognize how connected they are. Right. Which means we're never going to solve both of them if we have that mindset and both of them are serious, serious issues. But we'll never solve uh, both of them. If we have to do both, if, if, if we, if, if we do it the right way, pick either one and try to solve only one and you'll never solve either. Right. You have to, yeah. they have to be simultaneously uh, attacked. And I think there's like another reality here. Like there is a value in increasing the value of a piece of land period. So if we made it really mundane and I bought completely barren, 400 acres, and I broke that into 100 four-acre lots and said, I'm going to sell lots for people to build their four-acre homestead. There would be a certain value per four acres. Let's say, I don't know, it's really cheap. Let's say it's five grand an acre, so $20,000 a lot. If I put in roads 
so that people can get you know access roads that are well designed and maintained, then the value per four acre lot will go up. If I put in electricity because it's going to be an on grid community, and now you know when you build your house. You have power, and if I put in water of some kind, and so you have power and water for utilities. Now the value of that lot is even more. If I, you know, if I put a found, you know, if I clear the area for a foundation, so now all you have to do is design your house and have it built. Now you're going to pay me more for the lot, and odds are I'm not going to go out and do all that work, right? I'm going to hire companies to do it. Now I'm not going to hire these companies because it's my dream to see a hundred houses built, right? I'm going to hire those companies because I know that if I pay the money and they do the work right, that the va- underlying value of the real estate will go up enough that I'll make more money when I transfer the ownership of that land. And now I sound very capitalist, and everybody that tuned in because of your name, not mine, is angry. But hold on, right? But like nobody, nobody seems to have a problem with that concept. Now remember, I said my 400 acres was barren and bare. There was no trees. If I have somebody come in and plant 10 trees per acre on that. The person who's buying it to put a house on it doesn't care about biodiversity, or whatever. They'll still pay me more money for a treed lot than an untreed lot. So those trees have likewise increased the underlying fundamental value of that piece of real estate. And so it's only right that you would say the person that comes in and plants you know 1,200 trees, like you would compensate them for that. You would expect them to do it because they want to see trees grow. Like all of a sudden, the tree because like the tree can add tremendous value in so many ways, monetarily and aesthetically and you know biologically, etc. And what you guys are doing is creating a tremendous ROI on the underlying real estate. Like if you go look at an estuary system that's de- denuded, degraded, there's no fish in it. It's it's eroded. It's erosive. When it does rain in the desert up upstream, all the sediment just washes out. It's forming deltas of clay. Nothing's growing on it. Like if you try to sell that piece of land to anybody, you're like I don't want it. It's a problem. Once you fixed it, what what is the what do you think the increase in value per hectare is? It's got to be almost astronomical. So maybe your direct ROI is you know I think you said nine to eleven percent or something like that. On, on your work, but but the the deal that the, the cut co- it's a lot more than yeah. So I'm saying the deal the customers getting is, is one way to look at it, right? It's incredible if you think about it that way because they don't know how to do it, they can't do it. You can, and you get a tiny piece of the actual value you're creating compared to what the entity that's controlling that asset gets. Yep. Yep. So th- this is this is also a key part of our of our business plan is. You know, we're looking at landscapes where other people don't see any value at all. Um, because which, which is kind of what Mollison said in kind of conventional thinking. There is literally no value to these landscapes. Which, which kind of isn't that really what Mollison built permaculture to do? Like, if you read Permaculture One, he's basically like, you know, all this arable land that just grows tons of food. Don't worry about that. Like, go find the undervalued, denuded, degraded landscape and turn it into something productive. Not only is that land more affordable, more accessible, but people will notice more, right? Nobody, yep. nobody cares when you buy like a thousand acres in Iowa in the middle of the Corn Belt in this deep, rich black soil, and you plant civo pasture. They're, they care, but they're also kind of like, well, of course it worked. But when you go do something yeah, like you're talking about, like people, it actually spreads the mission more, doesn't it? I think I think that's one of the only comparative advantages to desert work um, is that the 
the visible transformation is quite emotional and it reaches people at a very visceral level. Uh, and that's, you know, it's harder in the desert. There's no question about that. I, I'm, I don't know if I can say authoritatively that it's more expensive in the desert as opposed to elsewhere. Cause I haven't done it elsewhere, but the, that transformation, the, the change that people can perceive, um, is one, is one of the only comparative advantages. Yeah, I would but agree. Everything's harder, right? But, yeah, yeah. So, if people want to learn more about what you're doing now, and, and can is there a website they can check out and, and see some of this work that you're actually doing and what have you? Yeah, um, regenerativeresources.co is our company website. I am redoing it at the moment where we are going to put um, our first three sets of projects up and uh, have a lot more media being created. Uh, that's underway. I am on Instagram. I post some personal stuff on Instagram, but it's mostly work-related. Um, and then if if um, folks want to reach out, my, my email is nspackman at regenerativeresources.co. Well, Neil, again, I really appreciate you being with us today, and I'll make sure there's uh, links in the show notes to all of your resources, including uh, your video on the story of uh, the work that you did in the Saudi Arabian desert.